You're going to find our text this morning in the book of 1 Peter chapter number 1. 1 Peter chapter number 1 and verse number 1. While you're finding your place, I do want to make a remark or two. I appreciate Charity Baptist, the people here making myself and my family feel welcome. We visited here a few times over the last few weeks. Um, Some of you know us and some of you don't. But um, my name's Brother Ronnie Owen, and I have been the pastor of Palestine Baptist Church in Union County uh, for just over 16 years, about 16 and a quarter. And then the last Sunday of this previous month, May, the Lord definitely impressed on our heart that uh, that it was time for us to resign the pastor there. And so, of course, that's what we've done, and being um, natives and residents of Pontotoc County, we are now visiting churches here to figure out where the Lord would have us to be. And uh, and y'all have made us feel very welcome. We're just seeking the peace of God. And I wish you'd pray for us about that. I mean that sincerely, not cliche. I mean it sincerely. We want to be in the middle of God's perfect will for our lives. And if that's if that's two miles from home or if that's in the middle of Uganda, that's exactly where we want to be. I told you, Pastor, Wednesday night, we were here Wednesday night, and I said, Preach, I, I still don't know exactly where the Lord would have us, uh, exactly where the Lord would have us to be, but I said, you sure do have friendly, welcoming people around here. And uh, and I still don't know as I stand here this morning, but I'm going to tell you something, Brother Bass Player, uh, I felt the Holy Ghost nudge me when you was playing that thing up there. I'd That would make a fellow want to come to church somewhere when they got a good bass player. They ain't nothing like a good bass guitar, and a piano together. You get to heaven, I hope you like it because that's what you're going to be listening to <laughs> when you get there. Amen. Um, I do enjoy it. And I do want to hurry up and get to the message, but there's one more thing I want to say to you. It amazes me how, how life tends to make full circles. It's just amazing. Um, some of you, like I said, I know some of you and some of you I don't. And so I sure want to put my best foot forward with you because I've earned my opportunities with the ones that do know me. Um, but I was saved in August, August the 16th, as a matter of fact, of 1999. Um, I was 23 years old, and and um, there's there's a long backstory to it. I could take a lot of time with the backstory of how uh, how God used Charity Baptist Church. In that process, um, I remember being lost as a goose. I, I was raised two miles south on Highway 341, right out here on the left, and um, and I remember going to and throw about to and fro about my daily activities and seeing when they started building a building here and all of that. And and a coworker of my sister-in-law invited her to church. She came to church here. She eventually was saved. Then her son was eventually saved. Then my brother was eventually saved, and then they were all gathering around this altar on Wednesday night, and they were praying for me. I didn't know, but um, anyway, I got saved, and and then, um, so we started coming to church here. It just seemed to be the obvious thing to do, and so that December, uh, the Lord called me to preach from back on one of these back pews here, and, and I surrendered, right? Well, I guess this is about where the altar used to be, somewhere along in this area here. 
That's where I surrendered to preach. And, and I remember saying something along these lines. I don't know if I can get it word for word, but I said, Lord, I know you've never made a mistake, but this is probably as close as you'll ever come. But if that's what you want me to do, that's what I'll do. And so now over half of my life now, I'm 47 now, and I've been preaching all those years. And, uh, and we've seen a lot of things come, a lot of things go, a lot of water's going under the bridge. And, um, but I tell you one thing that blessed me unbelievably. Um, after all those years, I've preached from South Dakota to Florida to, I even pastored in a third world country called Louisiana. And, uh, and, um, say amen right there on the front pew. And uh, and so we you make full circle, and, and we came back here first one of the first services after we resigned the pastorate, and you talk about a blessing to me to see on that third pew there still sit Brian and Misty Jenkins and their family, and I thought, boy, what a testimony, what a testimony of faithfulness and consistency. And I admire that and respect that in a child of God as much or more than anything that I could think of. Just being faithful. Just being found in your place. So many times we want to we wanna knock the ball over the fence every time we get up to bat. But child of God, the thing is to be sure that when it is your time to get up to bat that you go to the plate. Rather you knock it over the fence or not. Be found in your place. So... I wanted to say those things before uh, we started the message, and I hope they deduct that time off of my time before this thing shocks me this morning. Uh, I told you we'd find our text this morning in First Peter chapter number 1. We're going to read through verse number 9. If you find your place with me, verse 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, and whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Would you pray with me for a moment, please? Our Father... We come before you just now as humble as we know how. And Lord, we've already asked you this morning and now we ask you once more, uh, Lord, to hide us behind the cross. Lord, we're nothing for people to look upon, nothing to see. 
But Lord, we want to brag on Jesus this morning. We want to magnify Him. We want to lift Him up. We want to honor Him with what we say and what we do this morning. God, help us to handle the Word of God aright. Help us to give this voice a text. And Lord, I pray for Your people this morning. God, I pray for Your people this morning who are suffering people. We're called to be a suffering people in Your Word. But Lord, I pray that You would help them to see the cause and the end of their suffering. God, I pray that when we leave here this day, we'll be able to say that we've seen the Lord Jesus and He was glorious and He was lovely. And Lord, I pray that we'd leave here better equipped to go out into a lost and a sin-sick world and to serve You more faithful, more dedicated, and with more enthusiasm than we ever have. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've read from First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and we're going to take our text this morning. Uh, primarily, we'll preach from verse 3 through 9. We read verse 1 and 2 just um, to, get you, to let you see some of the introduction of the text. Um, and so what I want to talk to you about this morning, it's really a question. Why do God's people suffer? Why do God's people suffer? There's no question about it. We don't have to take a vote this morning, I don't think, to see if we're convinced if suffering exists in the life of God's people. We're all aware that suffering does exist in the life of God's people. Now, you may watch uh, some televangelist who would try to convince you otherwise, but that's not true, beloved. God's people suffer. Suffer or suffering is the key word to the epistle that we're preaching from this morning. You find it mentioned some 15 times uh, in, the, in the text or in the entirety of the epistle. And so Peter's preach, Peter is writing to God's people, his elect people he calls them, and he teaches them and talks to them of the fact that Christians will suffer. The question I pose to you is why do God's people suffer? And it's articulated that way intentionally. I didn't say why do good people suffer? You hear that question asked sometimes. Why do good people suffer? Um, and bad people seem not to suffer. I don't make that distinction between good and bad people. God makes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust and he causes the rain to fall upon both. But listen, beloved, in the light of God's glory and in, in view of God's holiness, there's no good people among us. All of sin comes short of the glory of God and all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, so says the Lord. So there are no good people, but it is a relevant question. Why do God's people suffer? Why, why can it not be that we get saved by the good grace of God and all would be glory and bliss and no sickness and no heartache and, and no suffering and, and everything's just wonderful and pie in the sky and one day, maybe even without even death, God just takes us on the glory. Why can't it be that way? Well, if it was best that way, it would be that way. But it is not best that way. So we'll attempt to answer the question, why do God's people suffer? Now, first, I want to look at God's people. Then I want to look at the suffering. And then we'll try to answer the question, why? In the beginning, uh, where we began reading in verse number one, Peter introduced himself as the penman of the epistle. We know he's the penman. We also know that God's the author, amen? Uh, 
Peter is the penman and he introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I always find Peter's introductions interesting. He didn't say Peter, one of the inner circle. <coughs> he didn't say Peter, uh, the distinguished leader of the 12. You see some humility in Peter, <coughs> excuse me, as he's aged. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Then he tells us who he's talking to. To the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So you have a group of people here. Uh, they might not necessarily be strangers to Peter, but they're strangers to this world. And if you're saved by the good grace of God, you are too. The word of God declares you to be a pilgrim traveling through this land. The, the word of God declares you, believer, uh, to be part of a peculiar people, a people that can't be understood by this world that we live in. Peter says these people are scattered throughout these five places that he gives us. And then he further identifies them. He calls them elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So <clears throat> we know what that means. You take that word elect and we'll do whatever else you want to do with it. But we know that that distinguishes them as God's people. Blood-bought, born again, redeemed people of God. So that lets us know that these people would be the people that we asked our question concerning. Why do God's people suffer? Peter is writing to God's people, these suffering people, suffering saints. That's who's being spoken to. That's who these people are. They are God's people. And I want to say this morning, before we go further, that I am thankful to be numbered among that group of people. I'm glad to be among the redeemed of God. Yes, we're a peculiar people. Yes, in instances we are a shunned people and a criticized people, a forsaken people by the world. We are a misunderstood lot and sometimes even a hated lot, but we're a redeemed lot. We are a blessed lot. We are a forgiven lot. We are a loved lot in the eyes of God Almighty. And I'm thankful for the fact that he seen fit in his mercy and grace to save me, to redeem me. I bless his name for that. And I don't hang my head in shame and I don't lower my voice when I announce to you that I'm identified with the people of God. I'm a child of God, a son of God. I'm part of the people of God and the family of God. And whether you like that or not, if you're one of his, you're my brother, you're my sister. Amen. Ain't you thankful to be part of God's people? People all over the globe can rejoice over being, being taken into different institutions of a much less and smaller magnitude than being taken into the family of God. We get accepted onto the cheerleading squad or the football team or, or we make it to a level of supervision within the company. We rejoice and hey, that's fine and good. Rejoice. But listen, if there was a day when the good Holy Ghost of God came to where you were and he knocked upon your heart's door and made you aware of your sin and he redeemed you and saved you. Hey, bless God. Thank God you've got something to rejoice over this morning. Now I bless his name this morning that there was a day in the life of this sinner where God the Holy Ghost came to me and reached down into the miry clay and lifted me up and set my feet upon a solid rock and established my goings. And I love him because of that this morning. Don't you? I said, don't you love him this morning because of what he's done for you? I certainly do this morning. Well, 
I want to look at, we, we said we'd look at God's people and we've looked at them and, and we've recognized the fact that we identify with them. We are among them. We, we are God's people. And one of the, <coughs> one of the wonders of being one of God's people for me is this. I said, I know some of you, most of you, I don't. You don't know probably what I do for a living and I don't know what you do. You don't know what my proclivities and peculiarities are and I don't know yours. But the thing is, it's come 10.30 Sunday morning. We can gather on a hilltop on the south end of the county and gather around Calvary and find that it's all level ground and, out, and, and it doesn't matter all the things that we do not have in common. The fact remains that we have the, the one fact in common that we've been to Calvary, that we've been redeemed. We may, came, we may come from different social backgrounds, different economic backgrounds, different political backgrounds, but hey, hey, those of us that have been redeemed, we can gather together and rejoice over the fact that we've been saved. I'm sorry this morning, I'm just happy to be one of God's people. I'm happy to be saved. I'll tell you, there's a couple of things in this world that you're never going to see. The first is a brand new pulpwood truck, and the second is a man that says he's sorry that he ever got saved. Amen. Well, we see God's people. Now I want you to see our salvation. Our salvation. Verse number three. We're going to be speaking to you under three headings. And, and again, I just wanted to look at the introduction in the first two verses to identify who's being spoken to, that it is God's people that is being spoken to here. But we're at trying to answer a question. Why do God's people suffer? And we're going to look at God's people, we're going to look at the suffering and then try to answer the why. Our salvation is the first thing we'll look at. Then we'll look at our suffering and then we'll look at our Savior. Our salvation, <coughs> excuse me, verse number three. In the beginning of verse number three, here's what the Bible says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us Again, now we're going to pause right there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant what? Mercy hath begotten us again. I want to say concerning our salvation that it is of mercy. It is of mercy. If you are among God's redeemed people, would you with me just for a moment would you go back into time, however long ago it was, six weeks, six months, or 60 years, go with me in your mind back to where you were when God came to where you were at. And then with me, take one step further back to where you were dead, as the Bible calls it in Ephesians chapter number two, dead and trespasses and sin. Do you still have a clear and vivid recollection of your lost condition those days before Christ for you? Whatever the sin which so easily did beset you was, we all probably have a plethora of different backgrounds. Some may have been servants to one type of sin and others a servant to another type of sin. But make no doubt about it, beloved, we were dead in trespasses and sin. We were lost and undone without God. We were without God and without hope in this world is what the Bible says. But thanks be to God that He came our way. Do you know what the Bible says? 
The Bible says again in Ephesians chapter number 2 that we were dead in trespasses and sin. D-E-A-D. Dead folk don't help their self. It was the good mercy of God. It was God's abundant mercy that He came to you and showed Himself to you. Made Himself real to you. Made you aware of your sinful and lost condition. And caused you to repent and believe the gospel and exercise saving. I'm telling you that your salvation is of mercy. Is it any reason that the word of God said not of works? Lest any man should boast. I tell you, beloved, when you make it through the pearly gates and you stand among the number of the redeemed in heaven, if it were, and I doubt it would be, but if it ever were the occasion that one approached you there on the street of gold and said, why are you here? There will not be a one of us that would answer and say, because I did things right, because I had the answers. I knew how to come to God or right or this or that or the other, we'll point to the Lamb of God and say it was by Him. It was by His mercy. It was by His grace that I'm here this morning. Our salvation is of mercy. Second thing I want you to know about our salvation in the latter part of verse number 3 again, you'll see that it is a miracle. Verse 3 said that He had begotten us or excuse me, who according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Can I say to you that when God saved your soul, that it was a greater miracle than when Jesus stood outside of the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. When God saved your never dying soul, it was a greater miracle than when he fed the 5,000. It was a greater miracle than when Jairus' daughter was resurrected. I'm telling you that the greatest miracle that has ever taken place is when one who is dead in trespasses and sin is resurrected to newness of life. Hallelujah to God, beloved. Thank God for redemption. It is a miracle. It is not only a miracle, but it is the miracle of all miracles. So it is of mercy. It is a miracle. Look in verse number four. You'll see that it's marvelous. It said to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. Beloved, that's a verse that you need to slow down and chew on it really slow to really appreciate all that what is in there. To an inheritance incorruptible, he said, that's marvelous, wouldn't you say? And undefiled, that's marvelous. And that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Everything in that verse is marvelous. I'm telling you, our salvation, it is of mercy. It is a miracle. But it's marvelous when you consider the things that we're told in verse number four, this inheritance that's incorruptible. How we live in a culture who speaks of having a rich uncle that they didn't know in California who maybe will die soon and leave them millions of dollars. And did you know if that were to happen that that inheritance would soon be blown and they would be bankrupt? People spend money that they really can't afford to spend to try and win the lottery that they'll probably never win. 
but on the rare occasion that one of them do win it. Do you know, I don't remember the exact numbers statistically speaking, but the overwhelming majority of those who win lotteries and win untold sums of money that within a short period of time, a year or two or three down the road, they're broke, they're bankrupt, they're destitute, they're in a worse condition than they were before they ever struck it rich as it were. But our Bible tells us in verse 4 that as a redeemed child of God, we have an inheritance incorruptible, it says, and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. The Bible says that we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Is it any wonder we sang that old song, all of heaven will be mine someday. There's a glad day coming A glad day coming where the child of God will bid this world farewell and will ascend to heaven as our Savior did. And our inheritance is there. Listen, we're pilgrims passing through here. We suffer here. But there is a glad day coming where the child of God receives all that is His in Christ Jesus. Thank God. Our salvation, it's of mercy, it's a miracle, it's marvelous. Verse number 5, we see that it's maintained. It is maintained. Who, and that who being the people that he's named in verse number one and two, the redeemed of God, who are kept, he says, by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He's telling us, beloved, that we are kept not of our own will, not of our own strength, not of our own might, but listen, we've rejoiced this morning over the fact that there was a day Someday yonder in the past where we were redeemed, where we were birthed into the family of God and quickened and made alive. But if it were not for the keeping power of God, you would have been right back in your lost condition before you could have clicked your heels and snapped your fingers. That's how quick you'd have got lost again. Uh, Some have asked me before, preacher, do you believe Once saved, always saved. And I say, I believe if saved, always saved. Why would you believe that preacher? Well, number one, because the Bible says so. Now, if we leave the realm of Scripture and go into logic, which I don't advise, but if we were going to look at logic, I'd say this to you. Because if my salvation depended on me, I would lose it. And if yours depended upon you, you would lose it. God, before he ever considered your redemption, provided your preservation. Not necessarily your perseverance, your preservation. We are kept, he said, by the power of God. Another place in our New Testament talks about how that we are, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost of God, unto the day of redemption. It's the same thing that's being spoke of here, being kept by the power of God, or being sealed by the Holy Spirit of God unto the day of redemption. Now, we might have some city folk here, I don't know, but did any of y'all grow up with a sweet little old grandma that had a garden and a pressure canner? Raise your hand if you did. Hallelujah for you and your grandma too. Do you remember how she'd take those vegetables? Didn't matter if it was peas or 
or corn or butter beans or whatever, and, and she'd put them into those pint jars and quart jars, and she'd put that flat on top. You know what I'm talking about, the flat, and then the ring, and she would put it on hand tight, and she would put it in that pressure cooker and a few inches of water, put the lid on it. It wouldn't be long. I don't know the technical t- th- term for that little thing on top. We just called it the jiggler. Y'all know what I'm talking about? That thing went to and she had it set on five or ten pounds of pressure for an allotted amount of time. And then she let that thing depressurize, take it out, and, and put it in the pantry, in the cupboard. It might have been tomatoes. Amen. And then what would happen? That might have been in July or August. But then come November or December or January, maybe Daddy had gone out and killed a deer or something like that. And we're going to have a deer stew or maybe some chili and Mama's going to make it. And Mama wants some tomatoes. If, if you're from the country, it's tomatoes. Amen. Tomatoes. My children get on to me all the time for talking that way. It's winders and tomatoes. They say, Daddy, can't you speak English? I say, I don't need to speak English. I'm an American. Speak American. <laughs> Amen. Well, Mama would go in there and she'd take a quart or two of them tomatoes and, and she would uh, take that ring off. And now you've got that flat. And you had to take it off. And it could be a little bit of effort to get it off. Why? Because it what? Sealed. And it was what? Preserved. Now you could have taken them same tomatoes and laid them out on the countertop back in July when Mama canned them. And come back and look at them in December or January when you got ready to cook that deer stew or chili. They would not have been appealing at all. But these, because they were in something in that jar... And they had been sealed. Y'all remember what they'd sound like when they'd seal? She'd have them sitting out on the counter, sitting on a towel, and you'd be in there watching your cartoons or whatever, and you'd hear it ping, 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 and they'd go ping, and they're sealing off. And they'll stay sealed indefinitely, right? Indefinitely. Now, I know the USDA tells you you need to throw that stuff away in two years, but I'm telling you, you can go 10 years, and if it's sealed and pop the top of it, honey, she's good. And she'll make some good chili. What I'm telling you is that just as sure as Mama's tomatoes, and excuse me for my country illustration, but just as sure as Mama's tomatoes are good two, ten years down the road, if the Holy Ghost of God has ever been to where you at and convicted you and God saved you and redeemed you, hey, hey, He sealed you and you'll be sealed until the day of your redemption, until He presents you to the Father. That's how long you'll be redeemed. I'm telling you that our salvation is maintained, but it's not maintained by us. Amen. It's maintained by Him. (coughs) The last thing I want to say concerning our salvation is found just in the first few words of verse 6. It says, wherein ye greatly rejoice. He's still considering and speaking of our salvation, right? And he said, wherein ye greatly rejoice. I'm telling you, our salvation is magnificent. That word, the root word is magnify. Like a jeweler would take a a stone, a diamond, and he would look through a magnifying lens that would that would increase his ability to see 
the finite detail of the stone that he's gazing at. I'm telling you, our salvation is magnificent, beloved. It's worth looking at into a little deeper. It's worth gazing upon. It's worth musing over. It's worth considering. It's worth an abundance of your time just to reflect and think about all the details that went into God saving you and you being saved and God preserving you. I'm telling you that the salvation of a singular soul is a magnificent thing. Thank God for salvation. <clears throat> Second thing we're looking at is our suffering. Now we've already looked at our salvation in view of a question. Why do God's people suffer? To this point this morning we have labored at trying to delineate who God's people are what God's people have experienced that causes them to be God's people. But now we're moving forward and looking at in our effort to answer this question of why do God's people suffer, we're moving from our salvation to our suffering. Continuing in verse number 6, in the latter part of verse number 6, looking at our suffering, here's what it says. He said, Though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptation. Do you know what I see in this verse? I see that our suffering is firstly prescribed. Prescribed. It's not just happenstance. It's not just luck of the draw that bad things happen to God's people. There are trials and hardships that come into the lives of God's people. And listen, child of God, they are prescribed oftentimes in our life for different purposes at times. God prescribes suffering in our life for different purposes. But as sure as you take sick and you can't get over it, my wife is a Natural medicine guru. And if you get sick at our house, you finna eat some sort of leaves <laughs> or something. And and my youngest daughter, she got sick here a few days ago. And and I mean, she ate leaves till I thought she was a Belgian mare. And she wasn't getting any better. And so we come to the point where we had to uh, humble ourself and swallow our pride and say, we've got to go to a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and we went to the doctor. And the doctor humbled her and give her two shots and, and then said, I'm going to prescribe you something. Sent her to the drugstore with a prescription or two or three. I don't know the quantity. But the point is this. That doctor knew more than we knew about what was going on with her. And so because of what he knew, that we as the patient did not know, he prescribed something to her. That prescription, I know the first he gave her did not feel good. The second probably didn't taste good. But in the end, she's at church this morning and she feels better. And I'm telling you that our great physician is fully entitled and it's completely fair for him to prescribe suffering into our life as he sees fit and when need be. And that is the words that he used in the text, though now for a season, if 
need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptation. There's a great comfort. There is a great solace to be enjoyed and experienced by the child of God in this single thing. That is knowing that whatever enters into our life has not taken God by surprise and that God has allowed it to be in our lives and that God in his omniscience is using that to better us. You can believe that. You can rest your head on your pillow with that. When you go to your doctor, no matter, and listen, I know some of these things are easy to preach, but rather hard to live. But when you go to the doctor and you get that bad report, when your child or your parent gets that bad report, when things seem to go awry and the questions just pop up in your mind, why, Lord, why? Have you ever had life deal with you in such a way that you felt like that the wind was not completely out of you? Have you ever felt like that you wanted to just lay down on the ground in a fetal position and not get back up and just try to stop bleeding from what you've experienced in your life? If you say no, just hang around. You'll get there. We all get there. It's in those times the knowledge that we have a God who loves us and He's working all things together for good. He didn't say all things are good, beloved. He said He's working all things together for good in our life. And you can pillow your head on that. You can rest in that and know that God is in control and He's working it together for good. Too often... We want everything in our life to be good. We're not interested in all things working together for good. We just want all things to be good. I've already let the cat out of, a, out of the bag a little bit as to my redneckedness, if that is a word. If it wasn't, it is now. Anybody in here like buttermilk biscuits? Cathead buttermilk biscuits? Amen. Brother bass player, I'm liking you better all the time. All the time. Do y'all know what goes into making buttermilk cat head biscuits? Well, obviously buttermilk. There sits Daryl Foster back there. I know he hates buttermilk. Lard. I mean, if you're talking about real biscuits, I'm talking about lard, melted fat off of a hog. Amen. Lard. Lard goes into making cat head buttermilk biscuits. And flour. Now, you can tell by looking, looking at me, I like a lot of things. I like a whole lot of things, but I don't like flour. I've never sat down with a spoon and just got me a big old spoonful of Martha White or White Lily and said, hallelujah, that's good. I've never done that, nor have I done it with Crisco. I've never done that with Crisco, never even had the desire. Now, buttermilk I have many times, but two-thirds of the recipe I wouldn't give you a plug nickel for. But if you'll take those three, each one in its correct proportion. Blend them properly. Put them through the heat. There's something to that. Put them through the heat. When it comes out of the fire, the end result is quite splendid. It's wonderful. Don't tell you something. You take a homemade 
buttermilk cat head biscuit on a cold winter morning and lay you a slab of butter on that thing and let it get melted and then fold her back in half and pour some black strap molasses on it. Hallelujah. I mean, you cut a piece of it off and put it on top of your head, it'll beat your brains out trying to get your tongue. Your tongue will beat your brains out trying to get to it. Amen. That's exactly what will happen. Listen, biscuits are good, but everything that goes into making homemade cat head biscuits is not good. But it takes all of those things put together. It takes a process of time, a process of heat, and the end result is glorious. And I'll tell you, God works that way in your life. Beloved, these things that you're dealing with in your life right now that you think, this is going to crush me. This is going to kill me. I've had, God has been, I've, I've had so much more blessing than I have hardship. But we have hit a few bumps in the road. And I've seen a time or two when I thought, God, I can't go home. If you don't help me, I cannot get behind that pulpit again. God, if you don't help me, I can't get out of this bed. But do you know that God was taking every bit of that and working it together for good? He was working it together for good. Our suffering, it is prescribed. It is precious look in verse number seven in the first portion of the verse it says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes though it be tried with fire might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of jesus christ our suffering is not only prescribed but it's precious much more precious than gold listen if the end result if the end result of our trial is to make us godlier if it makes us holier, if it makes us more righteous, if it equips us and molds us and makes us into such a person that we can draw nigher to Him and know more of Him and fellowship more closely to Him, it's precious. Our suffering, we look at it as a, as a scourge, as a curse, but Peter said it's precious because it's getting you to the place that you need to be. It is not only prescribed and precious, it is praise. He said it might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Our suffering will bring forth praise ultimately because the child of God who is sealed by the Spirit of God and kept by the power of God, he'll endure and listen. Come the end of this thing, it'll be glory for God. It'll be honor to Christ. I'm about to get ahead of myself in my next point. Let's just uh, get ready to go there. But one more thing I do want to say about our suffering. Y'all have been going through the book of Job for some time, is my understanding, on Wednesday nights. Do you remember what Job said? I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there. You remember chapter 23, verse 8 through 10? Here's what Job said. And Job was tried, right? I like the things I've heard Brother Kevin say as of late. I've heard two of his messages in Job chapter number 38. The fact that he never explained anything to Job. He never told Job about the meetings in heaven with, with Satan. He never explained any of that. Didn't have to. Wasn't required to. But Job at this point in chapter number 23 and verse number 8 through verse number 10, here's what he said. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. You ever felt like that? I go forward but I can't find God. You ever had a situation in your life where you felt like you just blindfolding, you just reaching out and can't find God anywhere? He said him backward, but I cannot perceive him on the left hand, 
where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand that I cannot see him. It is that way at times that it feels as if our Lord is hiding himself from us. That's what Job was experiencing. But look at what he said in verse number 10. He said, but he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job said, your suffering, it's precious. It's precious. will come forth. The last thing that we want to mention, we've talked about our salvation and our suffering. We talked about our salvation in an attempt to identify who God's people are, right? We're asking a question of ourselves. Why do God's people suffer? We've looked at our salvation to help understand who God's people are. We've looked at our suffering. We understand that God's people suffer and often suffer greatly and sometimes without any understanding as to why. But now, we've got to try to answer the question, why? Why? The only way that I can answer the question, why, is by looking at our Savior. Again, we looked at our salvation and our suffering But if we look at our Savior, I think we can answer the question as to why. Why do God's people suffer? One of the grandest things that I've learned to do in life, when I don't understand, when I can't find my way, when things can't be explained, when everything doesn't make sense, is just to cast my eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His marvelous grace. Gaze upon Him. Look upon Him. Study upon Him. Look at verse number 8 with me if you would. Whom having not seen, ye love. Anybody in here seen Jesus? Don't come at me with some extra biblical revelation now. I know you hadn't hadn't seen Jesus. Whom having not seen, ye love. Child of God, does that not smote you right there? Whom having not seen, ye love. I love him. I love Him dearly. But do you know why I love Him? Because He first loved me. Isn't that what the Bible tells us? We love Him because He first loved us. When looking at our Savior, I say firstly we see the lover of our soul. He loved us supremely. He loved us supremely and sacrificially. He loved us enough, and I know you know these things, but to come and to take on the form of a man and to live in a sin-cursed world and to die as he died, I'm telling you, friend, it absolutely blows my mind when I consider my Savior, your Savior's great love for us. He's the lover Of our soul. But then verse 8. In the middle portion. Tells us that he's the lifter. Of our sorrow. It said whom having not seen you love. In whom. Though now you see him not. Yet believing. You rejoice. With joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now this doesn't make sense. To the carnal mind. Because Peter's still writing to this same people. These strangers that are scattered. Throughout Pontus, Galatia. Cappadocia, Asia. And Bithynia. These suffering people. Who suffer to the extent that. 
Peter sees Fitz writing an epistle that focused primarily on the suffering of God's people, but yet we make it only eight verses into this epistle. And he says, Ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. How are suffering people rejoicing people? That doesn't make sense. Well, if you notice the rejoicing and the joy unspeakable and full of glory was not mentioned until the Redeemer was mentioned, whom having not seen you love and whom though now you see him not yet believing. You understand that God's people, the redeemed of God, through the love that they have for him, when the suffering and the trials and the tribulation of life come their way, and they are coming. When it comes your way, the thing that sustains you is the very one, if you remember earlier, (coughs) is the one who prescribed it. He prescribed it. Why did he prescribe it? Why did God allow this sickness in my life? Why did God allow this trouble in my home? Why did God allow these hardships? I'm telling you, beloved, at times God allows suffering under whatever name you give it. God allows suffering into the life of his people that his people would draw near to him. And when they draw near to him, they see him more clearly. And when they see him more clearly, they see what he is rightly deserving of. And that is their praise, their adoration, their love, their adoring of him. And what happens in that instance is this. These same people, I don't know what all is going on in their life. Great persecution, no doubt, probably that like none of us have ever seen. But yet the Bible says that they rejoice. And not only do they rejoice, but they do it with joy unspeakable. And full of glory. You ever seen the old saint of God who's had the bad diagnosis, who's been through the treatments, who's lost all the weight, who has no hair on the head, who hobbles into the house of God? And when God's people begin to sing praises to their Savior, a feeble little hand lifts up and magnifies their God. That saint can worship in a way that I cannot because they have been in a place that I have not been and found him to be present in that place. Do you understand? He's the lifter of our sorrow. In the midst and in spite of all the weight that gets on us sometimes, and I know, beloved, if you've been saved long enough for the water to get hot, you face times in life where you thought, if one more straw, the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. If one more straw of burden is placed upon me, I will crush. I will crumble. I'll die under this. Then you take it all to Jesus. You go to the secret place, the closet of prayer. You draw nigh to him. And and what's he promised to do then? Draw nigh to us. And then we have that joy unspeakable and full of glory. Look at verse 9 and we're done. Not only is He the lover of our soul and the lifter of our sorrow, He's the Lord of our soul. He says, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. God's people persevere 
in this matter. God's people do suffer. God's people do have sorrow. But God sovereignly works it all out. I want to read a verse or two to you. We're done. Ephesians chapter number 2 verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. Listen to this now. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, I'll read now. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. That's why. The question was why do God's people suffer? That verse 7 may come to pass. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. When God shows the exceeding riches of His grace, it won't be just over the fact that He was able to save you, but also over the fact that He was able to keep you. And not only over the fact that He was able to save you and to keep you, but that He was able to keep you through the greatest hardships of your life. And not only did He keep you through the greatest hardships of your life, but listen to this, that He grew you. That He grew you through the greatest hardships of your life. A friend of mine who's also a friend of Brother Kevin, Brother Terry Oswald, over in Alabama. I heard Brother Terry say this one time. He's a very, very country preacher. He's logged, worked timber all his life. He said, I got to notice him one day out there in the timber woods. It's real hilly over there in that part of Alabama. He said, I noticed looking from a distance, you would think that over that whole track of timber, it might be 500 acres. And you'd think that that 500 acres of timber was flat because all of the treetops were almost even one with another. But as we got in and began to cut the timber out, we found that there were huge hollows and high cliffs. And he said, God showed me something. God showed me that those trees that he planted down there in the valley, they grew at twice the rate, twice the speed of those that were mount, planted on the hilltop. They were all planted at the same time, planted pines. But the ones in the valley, the one in the low place, from a distance, they seemed to be the same height as the ones on the hilltop. But in reality, they were twice as tall. They had been planted in the valley. Child of God, when you're in the valley, don't long for the mountaintop. Long for the lesson to be learned while you're in the valley. Draw nigh to Him. He'll draw nigh to you. And I want to assure you that God has never allowed you to suffer for kicks nor giggles. God has allowed you to suffer if need be that He might grow you, that you might grow in righteousness and holiness and be a more mature Christian and that you might be able to bring honor and glory to Him. And when it's all said and done, child of God, is that not... Is that not our purpose? Being the redeemed of God? Are we not here to bring honor and glory to the one who loved us and gave himself for us? That's our purpose. Let's all stand if you would.